Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. Tuesday, January 30th, 1649, Charles I, King of England, was beheaded. Fifty-nine men had signed his death warrant, and when, after a series of extraordinary and unanticipated events, his son Charles II was restored to the throne, he took revenge against his father's executioners. Some of them, anticipating this, fled from England by, as it were, the back door as young Charles entered through the front. Many of them fled to the continent, but three of them braved a 3,000-mile sea voyage to take refuge among fellow Puritans in New England. With me to describe the curious tale of the King's executioners in America and the equally curious tale of their legacy is Matthew Jenkinson. He is the headmaster of New College School in Oxford and author most recently of Charles I's Killers in America, The Lives and Afterlives of Edward Rayleigh and William Goff, published by Oxford University Press. Matthew Jenkinson, welcome to Historically Thinking. Hi. So um, this is a tale of murder, intrigue, escape, and then legend and histor- yeah. historical repurposing. So we want to make sure that we cover all of this. But um, first of all, how did you get interested in this topic? You, st- you started your doctoral thesis on Charles II, right? So I guess this is a natural outcome of that or... Am I wrong? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so I was working on a totally different project on uh, kind of restoration court culture in Charles II's reign, so 1660 to, to 85. Mm-hmm. Um, I was looking at the theat- theatricality of the restoration on London streets, and it became pretty clear uh, pretty early on that um, alongside events like Charles's coronation, you had the trials and executions of the regicides, pretty much in the same streets, a few months apart. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was looking at that, looking at the... Uh, published accounts of the the trials, very, very lengthy published accounts. And when they were uh, published, they included a a copy of Charles I's death warrant. And at the time, being a studious uh, doctoral student, I thought I'd check that all the names were were present. Uh, But one of them wasn't, and that was the name of of John Dixwell, who was the third regicide who um, uh, eventually fled to America after the Restoration. I should say that he's not in the title of the book, but he's in the book. He is, sorry, he's, he's not in the title of the book, but he is, he's there. Yeah, it, the, the, the title was, was getting a bit unwieldy, so yeah. my editor cut it, cut it off. Um, anyway, but John Dixwell was pre- present uh, in the book, and he was missing on this death warrant copy. So I looked him up and, and wondered what, you know, what he was doing after the restoration, where, where he'd gone. And then came across uh, Edward Wally, uh, William Goff, who were doing something similar, but actually quite a lot more interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, so I kind of wondered where they went, had they survived for so long. Um, then I went back to my original project and put this stuff in a drawer and, and came back to it once I'd completed the project on, on court culture. But then once I was looking into um, where they were, what they were doing, it, it quickly became clear that the history of their representation, their kind of their afterlives was almost as important and in- interesting as their, their real lives in terms mm-hmm. of how we came to remember and then to forget them. So it, it became a, uh, a kind of, I guess, a spin-off project from the, the, the core culture. So uh, we're probably going to have to first talk about the English Civil War, since uh, Americans know quite a lot about their own, but nothing about the English Civil War. 
Um, as we'll see, that's actually a change in American historical memory uh, from, say, 200, 150 years ago. Um, so English Civil War, how it, why it happened and how Wally and Goff were involved in it. Um, it's a big question. <laughs> I know, uh, sorry. <laughs> uh, well, okay, a, a, long, a long story, very short. Yes, um, and historians obviously have been divided for, for decades or centuries over whether the Civil War was kind of the result of long-term shift socioeconomically with kind of class conflict at its core or whether it's a Whiggish inevitable drift towards kind of parliamentary democracy or whether it's Both. a result of short-term contingent causes. Um, putting that to one side, uh, what is true to say is that, that, that Charles I, in, uh, when he became king, inherited a, a kingdom that was split religiously uh, since the Reformation in the 16th century. We've had the growth of Puritans, the Protestant Protestants as they're known at one end, the Church of England in, in the middle, and then the residual Catholicism at the other, and Catholics at this point, I'm sure everyone knows, was, were much maligned following memories of uh, Marian persecution in the 1550s, the Spanish Armada, the gunpowder plot. So we've got that going on. Combine that with Charles I's financial problems, um, his stubborn and or principal belief in the divine right of kings, that, that God put him on the throne and therefore he answered only to God, not to his subjects through, through Parliament, which he chose to dissolve. And you get this kind of febrile situation. Um, it comes to a head in the late 1630s and 16, early 1640s after Charles I and his Archbishop of Canterbury, William Lord, uh, who are both very high Anglican, uh, tried to introduce their high Anglican prayer book into Presbyterian Scotland. The Scots rebel, invade the uh, northeast of England and threaten to venture further south unless they're paid a, a pretty significant sum of money per day. Um, Charles at this point has no point but to return to Parliament. He has to call them back to raise taxation to get money to pay the Scots. Um, and we have at this point an intransigent parliament issuing demands that in effect would have shaved away um, the royal prerogative powers. Charles was never going to agree to those demands. So neither side will back down. And again, to cut a very long story, very short, the, um, the only solution was going to be a, a military one. Um, in terms of William Goff, uh, obviously they're on parliament side and either one is, or both are present at, at key battles like at Master Moore and Battle of Naseby. Um, I should say, by the way, at this point, that, that Wally is Oliver Cromwell's cousin. Who is he? Okay. And, and Goff uh, was uh, Wally's son-in-law. So there are kind of familial connections to the parliamentary leadership. So they're, they're, they're key figures in the, in the 1640s in the Civil War. And do they, um, because of those familial connections, do they have roles in commanding forces of parliament? Or are they? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, so they, they, they rise up pretty quickly through the parliamentary ranks. Yeah. Uh -huh. So we have to imagine that this is this sort of is swirling around England. Uh, there are very few. There are areas of royalist support or parliamentary support, but England is there's no clear demarcation line. Um, it's so it's it's like a sort of uh, England is sort of a Brownian motion of 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 uh, of, of fights and squabbles and uh, for how long? Ten years. Uh, no, so uh, it breaks out in 1642, uh, you know, decisive, Naseby in 1645 is pretty decisive, and then you get skirmishes after that. Um, uh, the, the key thing is that, that Charles, uh, after a, a search for settlement for a couple of years, actually restarts the Civil War, mm -hmm. um, and which we can come back to in a minute when we talk about why, why is it that Charles first, okay, he's defeated in war, but um, ends up... Um, being executed. Yeah, let's, let's talk. Let's yeah. talk about that. He's so. So there's there's actually a sort of a piece, 
Charles is still the king, and yeah. yet, and yet, then he decides to restart the civil war to regain his prerogatives. Yeah, well, so, so essentially, okay, he's lost uh, militarily. Yeah. Um, but to his mind, that doesn't mean he's, that he's any, any less of the king. Uh, his intransigence continues, and that includes during a period when he's, he's imprisoned, say, in, in, when he's in Hampton Court, he's actually guarded by, by Wally. Um, hmm. And it gets to the point that it seems that, that the only settlement can be one that, that in which Charles isn't actually present. Um, he's not going to concede the, the prerogatives that he's been attacked earlier on in, in the 1640s. Um, as I say, that's especially acute once he's restarted the Civil War, and he sheds even more blood of his own subjects, as, as it's argued by, by, by parliamentarians, by the New Model Army as well. And, um, and it's at this point, actually, that Goff comes more to the forefront in calling for uh, blood for blood. Um, and you get the uh, Puritan prayer meetings uh, at Putney and at, at Windsor, uh, you know, kind of Puritans examining their their souls, their consciences, and using the Bible to try and work out, well, okay, how have we got here and how do we solve it? Mm-hmm. And and they use the Old Testament. Um, and in the Old Testament, the uh, the punishment for a man of blood is is for that uh, man of blood to, to die themselves. And that's how he, he gets put on trial. Um, N648, M649, he's found guilty of treason then, then um, he's earlier executed on the 30th of January, mm-hmm. um, 1649, um, and Wally and Goff are their to the death warrant, so they're, they're, they're the fourth and the 14th signatories. So who are the men that sign the death warrant? What's their importance to the parliamentary cause? Is this just like the lineup of the most important men in the parliamentary cause? Is it people who are in parliament? I mean, wh- who? how did one... How did one end up signing it, the death warrant? Well, commissioners uh, at the trial. So the people who were, put, okay. who were actually put, put, putting Charles on trial in 1649. Um, and you know they, they vary from parliamentarians to pigs in the new model army or people who overlap, overlap and, both. And were these chosen, was Oliver Cromwell, was he at, by this time the sort of supreme leader? Or was he, did he arrange for all these people to be on the commissioners at the trial? Or who? who? Yeah, pretty much. So, so, so Cromwell's come to the fore during the Civil War. Um, so uh, you have to kind of ignore the Alec Guinness film, the Richard, right. Richard Harris film, uh, which has Cromwell, uh, you know, front and center right from the beginning. Um, it's John Pym, who in his early 1640s is actually at the forefront. Uh, Pym dies in, in 1943. And, um, and you get, uh, during, during the Civil War, the Cromwell-Manchester debates over uh, whether you should have an offensive or a defensive uh, pursuit again, against the king. And it's it's... As a result of that, things and, and, and Cromwell's own um, military abilities, the Cromwell comes to the fore in the 1640s. Yeah, so so he's uh, very much at the forefront um, in the late 1640s when, when this stuff's happening. Yeah, mm-hmm. but he's still first among equals at this time, at the time of the trial or the at the execution. Yeah, I mean he's not yet law protector. No, yet. not at all. Um, yeah. So they Charles the horse is beheaded. Uh, England becomes a sort of, re- well, it's a republic of a kind. Yeah, yeah, it counts uh, as a republic. Yeah. With a dictator. Um, it's or sort of a semi, you know, <laughs> di- I mean, it's it's complex. It's a complex. It's system. complex. Yeah, I mean, in the, in the sense that we get 11 years, uh, obviously, with, with for most of that, Cromwell is at the fore. Um, you, you describe it for dictator if you like, but... Um, Bit more complex than that. You get a series of con- a series of constitution experiments because you yeah. get this, this it gets vacuum. So we've got rid of the, the monarchy, and we have yes, what is nominally a republic. There's there's, there's no king. Or there's the person who is 
technically the king is uh, in exile um, over on the continent. Um, and so we, there's a big question of, okay, what political system is now going to fill that vacuum? What, what will the English Republic look like? And so we get these, these 11 years of what turned out to be failed constitutional experiments. And so you get the Rump Parliament, which is deemed too conservative, is dissolved. You get the Bare Bones Parliament, which is deemed too radical, that's dissolved. Um, you get the rule of the Major Generals, and that, that's um, uh, described as godly rule by gunpoint. And people like people like Wally and Goff, again, uh, prominent figures, who are given a collection of counties to administer and ensure kind of a godly reformation of Puritan, godly reformation. That fails. Uh, you get the humble petition of advice when Cromwell's offered the crown, but he refuses it. Um, and then Cromwell uh, dies in, in 1658. So his son becomes Lord Protector. Yeah, it's a bit, you know, the hereditary succession, a bit, a bit like a monarchy. Mm-hmm. But he has a little interest in the job. And one of Oliver's great strengths was his ability to kind of ride the two horses of the mo- new model army and civilian parliament. Now, Richard, his son, can't do that. He has no interest in it, really. Very much a country gentleman. Um, pretty much soon, soon resigns the protectorship, leaving another vacuum. And it's at that point that it, in this kind of chaos, it seems that the strongest soldier might fight their way to the protectorship, which has been described as very un-British. Um, uh, Goff was even noted at one point by, by one person as a potential law protector. Um, it's not a very convincing uh, argument, but, but somebody did moot him. Um, now, in this rather chaotic situation, we get General Monk, uh, a, a military commander, stepping in to calm the situation and to uh, settle things down by opening negotiations with, with Charles I's son, who is, becomes Charles II, King Charles II, mm-hmm. um, to return to England and, uh, as king with some conditions. Um, and one of those conditions was, was a kind of a policy of clemency for most of those who had been involved in the, sorry, against the Stuarts in the Civil War and, and the regicide in the Republic. Uh, but there were some figures who just weren't going to be accepted from, from what was called eventually the Act Indemnity and oblivion, which is a kind of law of forgiving and forgetting, uh, and the most notable people who weren't going to be uh, um, forgiven were those who had signed Charles the First people like Wally and Goff. So Charles the Second returns uh, from exile. Yep. Uh, sail- In Yeah, comes to Dover and makes his way up to London, and yep. as you describe it, more or less simultaneously, people are scattering hither and yon to get the heck out of the way uh, from what they see as his inevitable revenge. So there, uh, there were 59 signatories to the death warrant. How many of them, did all of them end up being uh, executed or exiled? Well, so, some, are, some are already dead by this point. Sure. Um, those who survive, uh, the, okay, the, the trial of the regicides mm. that happens when Charles comes back, there were 29 of them on trial, but not all of them are signatories. Okay. Um, uh, many of them are, but there are there some people like uh, Daniel Axel was a guard at, at Charles's trial. And there, there's this kind of window when Charles returns, um, and there are letters with people kind of um, worrying about, you know, where, where's this line going to come down? You know, who, who gets forgiven? Um, mm-hmm. Who's not forgiven? And it, in some ways, it's quite arbitrary where that line comes down. Yeah. Um, and some people wait around to find out where that, whether they're on the right side or the wrong side of that line. Uh, so 29 put on trial for treason. Uh, not all are executed, and we can come back to that uh, in a minute, if, if you like, as to what, as to we can speculate or reason why why not all of them were executed. A good number do 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 flee mm-hmm. um, to the Netherlands, to France, to, to Switzerland, Germany, 
um, or indeed uh, like Wally and Goff, and then eventually John Dixwell um, to to America. So, how about how many people did flee? Do you have a what in, in round figures who fled to the continent or to America? Uh, good question. <laughs> <laughs> so. so 10, 15, I think. Yeah, okay. And um, they were, I mean, you describe, one was, uh, there was sort of a, a man who was a former parliamentarian himself who undertook being sort of um, running Charles II's death squad. Um, uh, well, yeah, okay. Well, George Downing. Yeah. Um, Down, as in Downing Street, I think, right? That was, he, he yeah, made, exactly. exactly he, was, yeah. he was the Massachusetts, he, he had returned from Massachusetts and then became a supporter of Charles II. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, he, a very, a very curious, <laughs> a very curious, uh, a very curious turn of personal events. Um, so, well, I mean, that, you know, he's not alone. I mean, no, he's a not. Lot, a lot of people save their save their skin by um, by kind of going along with the new regime. Yeah. It, I mean, the, again, we kind of talk about the extent to which this um, uh, this policy of revenge or this policy of sending uh, bounty hunters out. Yeah. Much less a concerted policy. I think with people like George Downing, they're given they're given this brief, yeah. um, and they're left to their own thing. I mean, George Downing is is particularly determined um, and effective at, at rounding up. Um, so Oakley Corbett and Bark said the three that, that he rounds up in the Netherlands. Um, you get other kind of uh, bounty hunters who you know go around. So John Lar gets shot in the back yeah. uh, on his way to church in, in Lausanne. So you get these individuals who are who are following. Uh, you know, a general royal policy, which again we can talk about in a minute about really what the specifics of that policy might have been. When we get to uh, the bounties in America, um, I think it's a bit more complicated because yeah. the people who are appointed are um, they're nothing like George Downing in terms of competence or, or determination. No. I, and in I, fact, and, and, and because they're dealing with authorities who are pretty adept at giving them the runaround, um, they just don't get in the near as far. And my my sense of this is reinforces a previous conviction that Charles II cannot be accused of being a micromanager. Um, <laughs> well, there's I mean this is this is not of primary interest to him. Well, I mean not not as we get into the 1660s. I mean you could argue that at the Restoration that there was yes there was a, a certain degree of, uh, of of a need to see that there should be some kind of revenge. Mm-hmm. Um, now, you know, Charles II is in different kind of historiographical trends now. He's he's portrayed in two different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, one is the kind of the pragmatist, the cynical manipulator who sits back, who um, is actually more concerned with, as the 1660s and 1670s progress, um, political concerns at home. Uh, and then there's the other view that has him as the kind of the pantomime villain, the Captain Hook you know, yeah. type figure um, who is... You know, rubbing his hands with glee and, and trying to get revenge on these on these terrible people who who had killed his father. Um, the, the the reality is that it changes with time, and I think once the initial impetus of the restoration is gone, so once we get past 61, certainly interest in capturing the restoration in America drops off significantly. I mean, they can we can come back to why that might be the case when we look at what's actually happening. But once we get into late 60s, 1670s. Um, there are so many other things going on in the English polity uh, that, that would suggest that he's just far too... He's either preoccupied with, with dealing with stuff at home or 
building a kind of a you know the proto-British Empire to keep his economy afloat, um, or indeed you know famously bedding his mistresses. You know he, he's 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 not a hands-on kind of kind of guy. You know, in that um, that's, yeah. So um, while in golf, uh, decide to take this extraordinary journey into the West. Uh, they leave behind family. Uh, they leave behind yeah, children, yeah. wives, uh, wives, yeah, and uh, yeah. basically they leave behind everything. Uh, yeah. and, and then for the next remainder of their lives, they are fugitives on the edge of the American frontier, which at the time is Western Massachusetts, um, which Americans are apt to forget. Um, yeah, and Connecticut. Yeah, yeah, and Connecticut. Um, so, uh, why did do you think? I mean, you have some suggestions of why they went to Massachusetts. And it's not unobvious. Rather than Lausanne or some some yeah. safe or Zurich, some safe Calvinist place in Switzerland, sounds a nice place to you know hide out uh, for the rest of your life. But no, they went to like the extremes. Yeah. Um, so obviously, there's a Puritan connection. Yeah. Uh, there are there are lots of um, uh, personnel in, uh, connections, interactions between the American colonies and the parliamentary cause in the 1640s. People like Hugh Peters. Um, who spent a lot of time in, in, in the colonies and ends up being one of the most um, prominent uh, New Model Army preachers. And in fact, is executed for his, for his efforts. Sir, Hen- um, Sir Henry Vane, of course. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And then um, there are family connections. So uh, Wally's brother-in-law is Dr. William Hook, who spent time in New Haven in the 1640s. And that, uh, it's Hook's connections in the New World that prove invaluable to, to giving uh, Wally and Goff contacts and places to stay. Um, they might also have had nice the fact that three thousand miles away is a bit safer than mm-hmm. than, than Switzerland, as as they <laughs> was proven to be yeah. to be correct. Um, and actually, I mean, we can over overplay uh, how difficult and dangerous that voyage was. I mean, it it, it was <laughs> compared to us flying over it um, a lot more difficult. But it, you know, it, it's a it's not an Path. And it's extraordinary how many people went back and forth. I mean, this was, yeah. uh, uh, it's expensive to do that, but people, and uh, there have been several excellent books about uh, people who return from Massachusetts, from Plymouth Colony or from Boston, uh, from Massachusetts Bay Colony to return yeah. to be involved in the Civil War, uh, yeah, yeah. or just because they decided that this wasn't for them. So there, there yeah. are plenty of return, as always for immigration to America, there are plenty of returns that, mm. that are then forgotten about. Um, so how are they received when they get there in they get um, to Boston? So uh, initially they're, they're, they're received very openly and warmly. I mean, they're met by the governor, John Endicott, um, Massachusetts Bay, you know, he's the most prominent figure and, and he's there, there to meet them. Um, they hang out with Puritan ministers they, who, are, who meet them, look after them, pray with them. Uh, some of them, I should say, would later try to rewrite this history yes. and say that they didn't, uh, they didn't fully realise who Wally and Goff were, or, or how dangerous their recession would be, or they were actually fugitives. But I don't believe them. I mean, they're 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 trying to cover their backs a few years later. Um, but yeah, initially warmly, I should, you know, as with any situation, there are detractors. There are people who who do want to um, return Wally and Goff to England, who want to be involved in punishing them. Kind of, you know, late, late in what we might call royalists or, or loyalists to the, to the Stuart cause. So it isn't overwhelmingly positive, but um, historians ever since, or commentators on the websites ever since they started writing about them, have um, played up whichever particular side they, they want to be uh, most prominent. Mm-hmm. So some historians will say 
um, we'll come on to Thomas Hutchinson in a second, for, for example, says, well, actually, um, the majority of, of, of New Englanders are, are sceptical and hostile towards the regicides. People like Ezra Starr say the majority of New Englanders were sympathetic to the regicides and willing to support them. And so it, it kind of spends, and you can't do a numbers game because we don't, we can't, like, we haven't got a register we can say in support, not in support. But you get um, Thomas Breeden or Breden, um, is kind of most famous, who kind of goes back to England and dodges them in. Um, John Crown, who ends up being a playwright for Charles II, uh, but who's an undergraduate at Harvard at the time, he's there. He's, he's with Wally and Goff. He's watching, and he, you know, he, he, he write, writes back, basically saying, you know, these terrible people have turned up and they're being um, fated by the uh, Massachusetts Bay authorities. Isn't this terrible? So you, you get both sides of the argument. But I'd say that the, the, you know, for our purposes, the important thing is that there are enough people who were sympathetic to keep to keep them safe. Yeah. Um, so when does that change? How fast does that change? I mean, word is getting back to London that these these people have arrived, and so it's uh, what in four or five months later is what, what, yeah. So, so, so what basically what happens is that the uh, that that obviously there's a delay in terms of news coming over to, to New England, but once the Act of Indemnity and Oblivion is is passed and promulgated, uh, kind of printed out and sent over, um, and once it's been received by people like Endicott, they have to give the impression they're playing along. With, with royal policy. And they can then say, oh no, we didn't realize that these guys were fugitives and that we shouldn't be protecting them. Maybe now is a good time for them to, to move away from our colony. And uh, for the next 15, in Goff's case, 19, 20 years, um, they are they're on, say on the run, they're, they're traveling around the, the New England colonies. And I mean, what I'm trying to do in the book is trying to work out to what extent are they being chased? To what extent are the colonial authorities um, just paying lip service to, to these royal commands, which again, they're not concerted the entire time. They don't happen every mm. month. They're, they're a big gap. Um, you know, to, to an extent, are other authorities playing along? To an extent, are they, are they trying to give the impression that they're playing along, but actually letting William Goff go free? Um, and so, yeah, so, so say, as I say, you know, once it's crystal clear that William Goff were wanted men, and others feel it's quite judicious to, to pay lip service to these warrants from Whitehall in London. Yes. Um, this gets uh, into uh, a large, this gets really is a, a nice way of um, understanding the curious relationship of the New England colonies back to the, 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 the central polity of the empire. Yeah. Uh, um, this, they are in this liminal space, uh, both figuratively um, and act literally, but also figuratively in the sense that who is actually in control, to what extent are they royal colonies? Um, they don't want people to, they don't want anyone in London to think too hard about whether or not they're royal colonies. So it's best to do what London suggests uh, or give the pretense yeah. of doing it. Yeah, yeah, ex exactly. I mean, the, the, who's in charge? Well, they are. I mean, yeah. they're, 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 they're very, they just, well, let's talk about, say, Massachusetts Bay is a, is a clearly obvious example of this. Yeah. Um, where they have, they have the history and they have the charge, they have the, kind of the official uh, mandate to do these things. And they even, even during the Civil War, of course, they're sympathetic towards parliamentary the parliamentary cause and their sympathy towards Cromwell in the 1650s, they maintain their independence in terms of never really kind of falling in totally uh, formally with, with, with Cromwell. Um, but yeah, they, what they also have to do is keep trading networks going. Yep. You know, they can't they can't really really irritate um, London in the way that they might want to <laughs> deep down, um, but they they, they 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 can't. New Haven's very different. New Haven has has no. Uh, Sympathy towards Charles II, and he has no sympathy back. Uh, talk, um, talk about that because New Haven is sort of people forget that New Haven. People don't realize that New Haven is the most hyper Puritan 
yeah. of of the uh, New England colonies, and it's well, it's should, not should, not, should, not Connecticut. I mean, it's it's New Haven. It's, yeah, it's a separate. Yeah, I, I, should, I, I should say first of all that yeah. the the the, the, the um, William Goff traveled from Cambridge and Boston to Hartford to Guildford to New Haven to Hadley and back to Hartford. So they're kind of taking in a number of different areas. Yeah, but the, the most famous becomes New Haven because it, it's it's been called a squatter colony. Um, it's a hyper Puritan. It has no legal right to settle um, settle there. It's, it's fragile. It can, it's, it's right to exist can be whipped away at any point, and it knows this. Um, and so it, it, it can it can say Yahoo sucks to to Charles II with with impunity because it's got nothing to lose really. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so it's in New Haven that 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 the regicides are perhaps safest in terms of having having the most radical or the most concerted protectors. Um, people like like John Davenport who who look after them, and that's where they just just outside. The New Haven settlement. You've got the um, the judges' cave, which is where they stay during um, two or three occasions when they're when they're being pursued in inverted commas uh, mm-hmm. by, by agents. Yeah, the um, the most of the stories of pursuit turn out to be nineteenth-century um, myth-making, um, sort of novelization. I mean, novelizations. But at the same time, I mean, they and as you say, they're irregularly pursued, um, but they're not. They haven't set up house in on the New on New Haven Green. They don't uh, no. retire to a farm, you know, no. and engage in, in in blissful you know bucolic life. They are in some ways yeah. they are always um, hidden within the communities yeah. in which they're residing. Well, I should say John Dixwell does live pretty openly. Does he? Uh, okay. he did, yeah, yeah. I mean, he changes his name uh, to, to a name with the same initials. Oh, okay. But you know, and it, 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 it's pretty clear who he is. Um, yeah, William Goff, it's, it's an interesting one because um, because they have we have these chunks of time, sometimes four years at a, at a, in a stretch where we don't really know what they're doing beyond. Okay, they have a residence now. Are they are they in the basement the entire time? Of course they're not. Are they are they are they they are trading? They are they're communicating with people. They're going to prayer meetings. They're having prayer meetings in the house. It, it's known. It's kind of open secret that they're there. Um, so I don't, they're not living openly, openly, but they're not, also not, they're not spending, they're not spending 15 to 20 years, you know, cramped under a chimney stack, which is what kind of, I think what some novels would like to us to, yeah, to believe. Right. Um, uh, I should, we should say that in New Haven, it's New Haven in 1661 that, that they are closest to being caught. Yeah. Tell, tell about that. Tell, tell story. Yeah. Uh, well, it, it, again, so it's once Endicott uh, realizes that it, it, it makes sense to at least pay lip service to the royal warrants coming through uh, from, from London uh, that, that suggest that he will command that he should be uh, trying to capture William Goff. Um, and you know, I, I would interpret it that he, his way of playing along but, but doing nothing really serious about it was to appoint two rather incompetent bounty hunters, uh, nothing like George Downing. They're called uh, Thomas Cannon and Thomas Kirk. Mm-hmm. One's a merchant, one's a ship's captain, and you know, they're they're sent they're sent down uh, through Guildford to towards New Haven, and um, I go into some detail in the book about exactly what happens. But you get this kind of comically recalcitrant um, episode uh, where they meet um, uh, William Leet, who at the time is the the most senior magistrate in the area, and. William Lee is, a, is extraordinarily sympathetic towards the websites and their cause, and puts enough obstacles in in what in Conundrum Kirk's way to make sure that they're always kind of one step behind um, uh, the websites. Uh, you know, giving enough time for for Wally and Goff to to abscond, and eventually Conundrum Kirk gets to New, New Haven. They, they search it, and that they are they're only you know 
a mile, two miles away from, if that, from uh, from, from Gough when they're searching New Haven. And the novels later on and the myths that come up would have them being a lot closer and mm. having these breathless chases and yeah. being being just a whisker away from, from each other. I don't think that really happened. I think that just is not, you know, my story is to, to kind of um, sex it up a bit. Uh, but uh, Cullen and Kirk go, they search, they sent off to New Amsterdam, they search there, and then they're paid off. They're given pretty generous grants of land. And again, I would interpret that as a way of just paying them off and, and encouraging them not to, not to pursue them ever again. Mm-hmm. Um, then you get a three-year period uh, when, again, there's no huge, <laughs> there's no manpower but behind any of these uh, warrants. In 1964-65, um, you get another uh, Royal Commission coming over, which, again, ostensibly is actually to do with New Netherland and to deal with you know, legal queries and, and, and problems arising I- I- in New England. And you know, the, at the bottom of this very long list of things for the commissioners to do, they say, oh, by the way, <laughs> check out where Wally and Goff are mm-hmm. um, and do something about them if you see them. It's not, it's, I, I wouldn't say that's particularly concerted. And then you get another long period of time. And again, I should say that of, the, of those four commissions, only about one's competent and they're deeply unpopular. Um, again, encroaching kind of these New England liberties by turning up on warships. And then you get uh, another, say, 10 years with no consistent manpower, and you get a guy called Edward Randolph who comes along, who again is, is, is more the pantomime villain than he is kind of anyone particularly seriously trying to um, trying to capture the women. You know, he, he, he hates them with a passion. And he hates the, the Mass Bay authorities with a passion for having uh, protected them in 1660 to 1661, and, and New Haven, I should say. But, you know, it's not, he has no ability to actually pluck them out of the wilderness in the way that he might want to. He just writes letters back to London, <laughs> kind of fulminating about it, uh, which to my mind is not the same thing as actually being particularly good about it. No, no. So, now, you know, once we get to the 19th century, People like Randolph and Kellen Kirk are really kind of jazzed up to make yeah. them a lot more sinister than they really were. A comp- company, Captain Hook figures, you know, that's... A, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, so one last, one story, which it almost takes us into the sort of the afterlife of the story, is the Angel of Hadley. And I, yeah. re- I remember coming across this as a kid somewhere, back when New England still had folk tales and myths uh, told, yeah. told about it. Um, they stopped that uh, and it became a less interesting place. But this was the idea of a guy in Cromwellian armor emerging from the forest during an Indian raid on the, a town in western Massachusetts and saving the place. Now, yeah, so, 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 to that effect, uh, that's been taken as, you know, a pure myth. You suggest there's actually something to it. Um, you also mentioned, uh, we should, this is related to this, that uh, Wally and Goff are both related in trade. Um, and by that, you mean trade with the Indians, right? Uh, yeah, or trade with other New Englanders. Okay, yeah. I mean, yeah. just, just, just managing to eke out some kind of existence. Yeah, yeah. okay. Um, yeah, so the Angel of Hadley, uh, I, I should say that, that it's, it, well, it's not my research that, that has, has yeah. actually made more credit. Uh, Douglas C. Wilson wrote a fantastic article. Um, because in the late 19th century, this story, which, as you, as you say, it's, it's about Hadley being attacked during King Philip's War uh, by the indigenous population, there being chaos, and it seems that Hadley's going to be basically decimated. And out of nowhere, this kind of grey bearded figure right. turns up um, and, uh, and coordinates Hadley's defence successfully and then disappears as, as quickly as he's appeared. Now, it, you know, it sounds unreal. And so um, it kind of went into the, the myth category. Yeah. Um, in the late 19th century, um, a local historian 
um, who, who kind of looked, basically tried to look at the timings and said, well, this couldn't have happened because um, I think he, the initial dating was the 1st of September 1675. And, and he said, well, during that time, have this crawling with soldiers. So there'll be no need for this guy to come from nowhere and, and save Hadley. Um, and so for the next, you know, 80 years or so, I think it was, that, that people said, okay, yeah, the age of Hadley is a myth. It's a nice story, but it's a myth. Douglas Wilson comes along and, and, and credibly uh, says, well, actually, I think we've got a date wrong, that, that we need to move this potential attack to 1676 uh, to a very brief window where there are no soldiers in, in Hadley during King Philip's War. And it's very conceivable that that, uh, that is the point at which, which God would appear. Um, <laughs> and, then, and then, you know, having done that, end up because it, it coincides with 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 Gough moving to 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 away from Hadley to Hartford, and that would make sense. You know, once once his cover is is blown, so yeah, I mean, ironically, the one that sounds kind of the least likely is probably the, the most likely of the myths to be true, and some of the other myths that have kind of come up, um, and partly through uh, the work of Ezra Styles in the 18th century, um, who and there are some historians today that still write about them as if these these myths are true and they're just utter nonsense. Mm -hmm. and it, it, it doesn't take much to, to work out their nonsense either. So, no. um, but, no, but the thing is, the that they're ripe for myth-making yes. in the 18th and 19th centuries. Because they're, but partly because they're, they are these kind of shadowy figures who, are, who aren't around for a lot of the time. And so you've got this, this fact that you've got to fill with stories. Yes. And those stories end up being myths. And, so, and, and to add to it, the, the, fact, the fact that when we come on to talk about the evidence, that the evidence supply is so limited because fugitives don't tend to write everything down. Yeah, well, let's talk. Let's, um, talk, let's go. I mean, first of all, Wally dies about when? I mean, this is before before the Hadley yeah. incident. Yeah, so around seventy. He's definitely dead by seventy-five. Okay, yeah. and then Goff, so Goff is in Hadley, it seems, and then goes yeah. to Hartford. Um, when yeah. when does Goff finally disappear from the record? Yeah, seventy-nine, eighty. Yeah, so definitely by eighty, but probably around seventy-nine. Okay. Um, what sources did you use? Let's talk about that first. So what sources survived? And we're going to say there's a lot of complexity. <laughs> there's a terrible, yeah. there's a terrible disaster to lots of New England sources that we'll, we'll touch on in just a second. Yeah. Yeah. But what I mean, you actually have a diary as an appendix. Uh, yeah. Well, okay. We'll start with the diary. The, the, the most frustrating bit is that that for the first, I think, is it seven years that, that Golf actually kept a diary while he was in uh, on the run, and this diary ends up in the in the Mather papers. And in the 18th century, um, Lieutenant Governor Thomas Hutchinson of Massachusetts Bay um, gets hold of this um, a diary because of his family connections to the, to the Mather family. And he has it in his house uh, in 1765 when that house is ransacked. Um, as a result of the Stamp Act. Yeah, when, it, when it's and, basically uh, it, when it's basically um, literally torn apart. Um, uh, they, yeah. they were trying to remove the cupola from the roof like mm -hmm. a day later. I mean, they, they were, they were tearing it from, into pieces. That, that was yeah, the yeah. riot. That's how, that's how a real riot is done. Yeah. yeah. And so of the hundreds of thousands of, of documents and books that are, are just basically thrown out the window yeah. into the street, uh, presumably one of them is Goff's diary. Yeah. And so it's one of those frustrating things that this, that we have this wonderful resource that just isn't there. But before this happened, um, somebody had transcribed the first few entries. So we have, a tantalizing glimpse of, of what he's like. Um, I should say, actually, was, when I was about half through writing the book, somebody asked me if I liked them, if I liked Wally and Goff, and I was, I was really taken aback because I've, I've never really bothered to think about whether I like the people that I'm researching. I just get on with it, and, and you know, they're just there. Um, 
But also, I couldn't ask the question because there was their voice is so hidden. It's very hidden, yeah. Um, we have some letters, uh, mainly composed by Goff, and then, if not entirely, and then we have Goff's, a bit of Goff's diary, and then we have some, obviously, some stuff from the 1640s and 50s involving them. But we don't, we don't have lengthy kind of documents that, that give us much insight into their personality um, beyond the fact that Goff was um, kind of something nervy, you know, something nervy disposition. Mm. Um, and so, uh, you know, trying to write about them, trying to get some kind of character out of them is, is difficult. And especially when, it, you know, half the research was, was looking at 19, 18th, 19th and 20th century kind of reimaginings, when somebody else has put on, onto these figures their own conception of what their character might have been. And so you, so you end up with multi, these kind of multiple personalities uh, grafted onto people who we don't really know a huge amount about. Right, which is, I mean, and, and it helps... To... In order that grafting is assisted by the fact that you don't know much about these people. Yeah, um, exactly. Uh, and let's talk about Hutchison's version of Wally and Goff, because that's yeah. so Hutchison uh, obviously uh, having his house uh, targeted by the Stamp Act. Uh, Hutchison is uh, an early. Uh, he always was loyal to the crown, um, mm. and is a mover and shaker in Massachusetts, Massachusetts politics. Um, is also a learned man uh, and interested in doing history. So he has a certain version of Wally and Goff. What is it? Yeah, well, it's, it's deep ironic that, that, that he's the first to kind of it is. Pub, pub, publicly rediscover them. I mean, that they would have lived on in, in oral histories, which again we come to when we talk about Ezra, Ezra Stiles, but Hutchinson is the first to rely on, on documentary evidence such as it is. Um, and he's responsible for the kind of the early, the earliest kind of reprinting of some of the documents that that, that we that we now have to, um, to do with Wally and Goff. Yes, he, he's deeply conservative, deeply loyal to the crown, and he's he's writing, researching, and writing uh, history of Massachusetts Bay. So the, the fraction on Wally and Goff is actually quite quite small, but he's also writing around some of the writs of assistance case, uh, which is is to you know, writ large is no pun intended um, to to do with uh, the crown's. Uh, right to infringe on the liberties of, of, of colonists, colonial merchants, uh, the right to investigate warehouses without permission. And so what, what Hutchinson is trying to do with Wally and Goff, he tries to say, well, in, my, in his interpretation of Wally and Goff in the 1660s, um, Wally and Goff were kind of loners. They were, they, were, they were strangers in New England. But the colonists were, by and large, loyal to the Stuarts, um, happy to dog the, the regicides in, and he's saying, well, just like the colonists were loyal to the crown in the 1660s, we should be loyal to the crown in the 1760s. And so uh, Hutchinson's interpretation is a deeply conservative one, mm -hmm. uh, and it's one that, that you know, which he can kind of get away with because he, he's focusing on Massachusetts Bay, who, you know, on the surface, are trying to catch Wally Goff. Yes, and he can, he, he can focus on the official documents. Exactly, yeah, which yeah. show which show a story that support him as long as he yeah, has, exactly. as long as he doesn't look for any sort of other evidence of how they were treated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and also you know if if you're writing the history of Massachusetts Bay, you can put New Haven in the footnote. Yeah. Um, so so you know uh, you can slightly glide over the um, the fact that there are other places <laughs> that, that that were really quite disloyal to the ground, more overly disloyal to the ground. So Ezra Stiles is, in fact, um, I think, by the t is he president of Yale by the time he writes his history? Yeah, 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 um, yeah. So Ezra Stiles is on the other side of the political disagreements in um, in British America in the 1760s and 70s and 80s. Uh, 
Edmund Morgan referred to him as the gentle Puritan, uh, or in some ways the last of the last Puritan as well. Um, so what does what Styles' interpretation of them is very different? Yeah, well, Styles is writing um, or researching and writing in the aftermath of uh, the American and French revolutions, you know? and so you know he, he's and he's also writing at a time when you know this kind of nascent American republic is going to work out, you know, what what vestiges of monarchism are we going to have? How much do we do we really want to keep um, from this this previous uh, political system? Um, Ezra Stiles looks to William Goff as and, and their supporters in, in in New England as kind of heralds of revolution, proto-American revolution. There's people who are coming over in 1660 and bringing with them revolutionary ideas that are seeds that are sown then germinate, you know, hundred years later. And so, uh, yeah, the, the diametrically opposite um, view to to Hutchinson. Stiles' sources. Stiles realised that the, the documentary evidence is so um, fragmentary that, that you need more. Um, and he relies more on the notoriously tricky um, kind of oral um, history, oral evidence that he, he gathers by walking around and talking to people, going to the place where Wally and Goff had been and saying, did your granddad or your great-granddad or your great-granny know Wally and Goff? And they would say, oh, yeah. Now, of course, as we know, you know this kind of narrative chain is easily distorted uh, and, and that this other myth come along that each time a story is told it gets made more exciting um, especially when families want to uh, associate themselves with 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 Wally and Goff or the regicides or the English Civil War which uh, there's a, a in, the, in the certainly the 18th and 19th centuries there's desire to do mm-hmm. and so stars ends up with these kind of distortedly more radical <laughs> Um, portrayals of, of Wally and Goff and, and stories that don't really ring true, but have them as more thrusting, um, more exciting, kind of heroic figures, with with a, a greater number of supporters in in, in New England than, than Hutchinson would have conceded. Um, and so yeah, he's he's, he's the diametrically opposite. But I mean, yeah, he, he even he concedes in, in his his book. He's the first. Yeah, no, he's the first person to write the first full length book about William Goff. Um, and he's creating a historical narrative in which the English Civil War is the precursor of the American Revolution. Um, it is, I mean, that's, that's, I, and what... It's a, yeah, it's, it's bestowing revolutionary principles. Yeah, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a tricky one. The, 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 when writing the book, trying to explain what some people like Styles and people in the 19th century explained is not what I think was the case, um, right. which some people might like to be the case, which is this kind of slightly Whiggish um, teleological view that, that um, because there was an, because there was an English Civil War, there was going to be an American Revolution, which is right. it just is the case. But I mean, of course, there are principles that are that are lent that are borrowed from the 17th yeah. century. I, it's, you know, it's, and, it's interesting. I haven't thought about this much. I mean, but I, I, I'm the only person I encountered this in before is John Adams, who when he goes to Naseby with Jefferson of all people. Is is saying to the local peasants, you should have a monument here. This should be celebrated. Uh, this is yeah. a great, you know, place of English liberty and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, but, but you know, revolutionaries, American revolutionaries, they've, they've read John Milton or yes. in Sydney. These these great uh, Republican writers from from England. Sydney and Hamden um, were very important to them. As, yeah, as, yeah, as yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, John Locke, obviously, you know. So we have we have, we have a we have a, so there's this kind of theoretical background, this framework that is there in the background. 
Um, I mean, Jonathan Mayhew's you know revolution well became a revolutionary sermon. These 5th of January sermons, you know, it's basically a, a Lockean discourse, you know, that in in sermon form. Um, but you also get less theoretical but historical references back to um, Cromwell and, and Charles. You know, kind of slightly, they're, they're gestures, but they're there. Mm-hmm. So what I, what, I, what I try to say in the book is that you know the American Revolution is not caused by the English Civil War, but the English Civil War and Republic provide some figures and they provide some models that can then be looked to in the American revolutionary situation. Yeah. Um, and, and, and occasionally those people are Wally and God. Yeah. Not always, yeah. but not always. Cause Cro- no, Cro- I mean, Cromwell's more famous, obviously. Milton's more famous. Yeah. Uh, Wally and God are. Well, it's, well, it, it, and related, I mean, I, I, I've heard a story from someone who, who grew up north of Boston uh, that somewhere, I'm thinking around Ipswich, uh, that Cromwell had land. Um, and that he was going to go to there if when the if the revolution failed. I mean, it's, it's sort of a yeah. it's sort of um, it's like a Wally and Goff story that didn't happen, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I'm sure there are others like that 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 that, yeah. beca- that became probably as, as 19th century stories. Yeah, and I mean, I mean, they're in the book, and then um, yeah. even since since the books come out, uh, so, some of the responses that I've had have been, did do you know about the you know the story about this and that and that, which are all following the same kind of model that my grandfather said that yeah. um, there's, there's this area in New England that um, are they are these connected to the to Cromwell because yes. and you think okay this, 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 this is actually still ongoing it's not um, it's not a uh, uh, it's, this kind of connection between American Revolution and English Revolution hasn't died um, but, but trying to work out what that connection is is actually quite tricky. It is, and it's a, a very much on a sort of now on a local memory uh, basis. You know, it, it would seem to me. In yeah, York. it's not certainly it's not part of. Um, you, know, you just don't encounter the story, or even much about the. What what it what's fascinating to me when I was reading it is is in many ways what's left in I think in the popular imagination, and this is getting us towards the end of our conversation is, you know, as a historian of colonial America, it's always deeply frustrating, uh, the teleology that everyone, most people have, I mean, that you find in every textbook of American history in high school is, you know, American colonial history is interesting insofar as it gets to the American Revolution. Yeah. Um, (laughs) And uh, so everything is always heading towards that moment. And so everything, therefore, gets interpreted in that moment. Um, mm-hmm. Wally and Goff, obviously, uh, Bacon's Rebellion in Virginia, as you point out, obviously, precursor of, you know, and it also, unfortunately, happened, Bacon's Rebellion happened in 1676. So that yeah. gives a very nice, you know, uh, yeah. connection. Yeah, yeah. and once you redate um, uh, the Angel of Happy to 1676, you've got the same centennial connection. Exactly. Um, and, and in fact, in Charlotte Young's um, uh, history, uh, kind of children's history, Victorian history of the world's great nations, as it's called. Um, she actually takes the, the iconic uh, picture of the Angel of Hadley, uh, which is a, a picture by F. A. Chapman, which is later engraved by by McRae, and they take Goff's head off and put Nathaniel Bacon's head on. So they're, actually, they're, they're they're conflating these two events, which yeah. they re- which they desperately want to be a uh, hundred years before. American Revolution, and therefore uh, this kind of harbinger of, of, of revolution. Yeah, it's, so, kind of, it's kind of nice. it's entirely convenient. Yeah, it, 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 it sort of this is dropped out of um, this is dropped out certainly of the myth of American identity, which is interesting. 
um, you know, you went, you've described how, uh, described how you went to the, the cave near New Haven, which is a bunch of rocks jumbled together where, where Wally and Goff uh, legendarily hid. Um, yeah. and expected to find a tea shop, you know, uh, yeah. people, places selling postcards. This would be a big part of Americanite. It, this would be a state park uh, yeah. of some kind. Uh, but it, it's not. I mean, it's just, it's even in, even in New Haven, people have forgotten this. Which is, yeah, I mean, well, well, together you have to go up Wally or Goff Avenue, I think. So, you know, the the, the, the names are there. Yeah, no, it it was, uh, um, as you say, I I went about, you know, a third of the way through writing the book because I I was was not that far away and thought we'd go for a day trip, expecting, you know, a kind of National Trust style tea shop. Um, And uh, pulled up the car, took out the cameras, and ended up finding two couples who weren't that pleased to have people with cameras hanging around. So, um, but I mean, we, we, of course, having traveled that way and, you know, from my perspective, having already gone 3000 miles, um, from, from London, uh, I was determined to get some photos. It, it didn't mean to get to Photoshop some of the photos for the book, but, um, yeah, it, 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 it's now, you know, the historical monument that I thought was going to be there, it was covered in graffiti when yeah. I was there as well. You know, I mean, and, and, uh, I think the people who were present weren't that, Interested in the you know the teleology, teleology between the no, English war and the American Revolution, yeah. but um, maybe if they read the book, they will be. <laughs> <laughs> so, what do you think? Is, as we sum this up, I mean, what has this? What does this say about conceptions of British identity and American identity? I mean, this is sort of the this is sort of the question that looms in the background of the book. It seems to me, um, and how those two are related. Uh, I, I think we might be at the end of the Atlantic history moment, um, but this is sort of this is definitely Atlantic history of a of a, of a type. Um, yeah, um, so I mean, the, the first thing to address is is you know why why people like Wally and Goff based I say disappeared they had disappeared they've come back. I mean, like most projects, when yeah. I started writing this, three books came out yeah. featuring Wally and Goff, but it's fine. Um, fundamentally, until the twenty first century, um, they, they have died out. With like an honorable, the honourable exception of the odd article you know, in the 50s, that they, they'd kind of died out. Um, I mean, you could argue that that there had been too much attention before then. Mm-hmm. You know, what I call in the book, I call it angel saturation. That yep. they've, run, they've got this idea and they've run with it for so long that it's got it's got quite boring. Um, it's become discredited. You know, that, that it's become too romanticised, too too far from the original truth. It's kind of entertaining, but it's become too much of a cartoon. Mm-hmm. So serious historians, in inverted commas, you know, wouldn't worry themselves about about it. Um, the story became more and more eccentric. We mentioned earlier about the family connections. You get families who are more and more desperate to have some kind of connection, who want to be associated with Wally and Goff, either through their their graves, where their graves are, which we don't really know. Um, and so, real historians look for something else. Um, obviously, also of course in the Twentieth-century American history has got a lot more to preoccupy itself with than a, a couple of old Puritans who are coming in caves or, or prevaricating over, over psalms. Um, you know, especially if I mean, some people have tried to argue that Wallingcock is basically only a local history story. Okay, it's great for New Haven, but nobody else cares. Mm-hmm. What I try to say in the book is that no, I mean, you know, that they they represent something far far greater. They symbolise something more than the lives of of, of men. Um, in terms of how what 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 they relate, they, what do they symbolise? Uh, re- liberty, revolution, and uh, that that that's that's fundamentally why, why they've lived on so long. Mm-hmm. It, you know, their, their their role has been distorted, but their fun, what they fundamentally represent isn't untrue in terms of fighting 
against the you know an allegedly tyrannical monarchy in the 17th century. Um, I mean, for, for, you know, both, both Britain and America, but both are keen nations keen to promote their they were conceived in liberty. Certainly, America conceived in liberty. Uh, England, Great Britain, uh, moving towards a course of its history. You know, Magna Carta onwards. Um, the regicides are kind of obvious poster boys for that liberty. You know that they, they fight against so-called Stuart tyranny. They, they they fight. They work for the English Republic. They put two fingers up to um, the Stuarts again in 1670s. Um, they reappear in various forms in the American Revolution. So, you know, as I said earlier, I don't think we should exaggerate the extent to which that these uh, English regicides are on, on the tongues of American revolutionaries, but they're on the they're on the page somewhere. Um, I don't also I shouldn't I don't want to go down the route where that some 20th, 20th century historians did uh, in the first half of the century, where basically they put English or wider European contribution to American colonial history and kind of ended up occluding the contributions of other people, you know, which, which was inappropriate. Um, you know, but it, but it is fun to examine you know, the extent to which they end up uh, you know, taking part in British events, but persist over time uh, through the 19th, 20th centuries, early 20th centuries, uh, in this kind of determination to move America, American culture away from its European forebears, mm-hmm. you know, and, and try to see how Wally and Goff become actually un-English. Um, because because English after 1660 is defined by the restored monarchy and a well, narrow definition, and that's inimical to people like Wally and Goff. They become actually become more American, mm-hmm. and so what, what you get in the 19th century in some of the novels is rewriting them to become basically American Puritans, who of course are a lot more acceptable than mm-hmm. English Puritans because they're a bit more calm. You know, they're, they're a bit less um, incendiary. They don't cut people's heads off quite so frequently. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and, and, in terms of and the idea, I think of of, of... The idea, as I was referred to when I taught this in class, I was referred to as British America rather than even colonial America, because yeah. that's quite um, it's quite countercultural for Americans to hear. I suspect it's also very countercultural for Britons to hear in some ways, mm. but it, it, it tries to, tries to bring about a different uh, mindset or, or, or frame the story in a different way. Yeah, I mean, it has to be put in a wider context. But yeah, but yeah I mean, I mean, it tells your question about. Um, British and American identity, how they relate. Um, I mean, trying to stand back from this the whole project. I mean, the, the problem with a project like this is that you end up looking at two people, yes. um, and, and you end up you try you trying to pull away from the micro history to try always try and look okay what what are the, what's the what's the bigger picture here. Um, in terms of identity, this issue of liberty, um, but the, the process of of trying to get to what you know, what I'm trying to get to is the truth about. Uh, a situation which has got layers and layers and layers of distortion in it. Um, I mean, that process is important. I mean, as educators, as historians, um, and I think you know, we all know that, that countries that lose um, sense of the truth of their history tend to be fair game for for people, leaders sometimes, um, who want to tell them lies and to twist kind of see the history for their own political end. So, you know, perhaps on both sides of the Atlantic, we need to know about the truth of our history, and, and that does involve us being patient and. And having the critical faculties to actually avoid easy answers, the kind of the nice myths, um, you know, without some of the books anyway, my yeah. books. Um, <laughs> my guest today has been Matthew Jenkinson. He's the author, <clears throat> excuse me, of Charles the First Killers in America, The Lives and Afterlives of Edward Wally and William Goff, published by Oxford University Press. Matthew, thank you so much for being part of Historically Thinking. Pleasure. Thanks.
For more historical thinking, go to our Facebook page, where you can comment on today's program and suggest ideas for programs to come. Please subscribe to us on Apple iTunes. And if you like what you've heard, please, please leave a review so that others can find us. Our program's editor is John Rodat. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week. Thank you.